0: Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out win the victory of truth and transparency and light.
1: Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland.
0: Fifteen hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. Five hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And fifteen minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on the this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow.
2: Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740.
1: All right, it's kind of an anniversary special tonight. We have um, uh, Greg Pallast, rogue investigative reporter... Uh, the investigative reporter's investigative reporter. This guy is so hot. I mean, the, the mainstream press in uh, North America will not touch this guy. So he's a a New York reporter in exile in New York, if that makes any sense. You'll see him on BBC, and he's published in The Guardian. But uh, as I say, well, I, you can't blame, well, you can blame them. But the rationale, I suppose, is uh, his last two books, I think it cost $2 million to have them lawyered. So if... You know, you're an editor or publisher, and uh, Greg Palace darkens your doorway. You you know, you're likely to hide under the desk. Uh, His latest book, I love this title, Vulture's Picnic, In Pursuit of Petroleum, Pigs, Power Pirates, and High Finance Predators. A Tale of Oil, Sex, Shoes, Radiation, and Investigative Reporting. Can't wait to to get Greg in here in about an hour's time. And uh, we will talk about, of course, Deep Horizon, which is, uh, you know, two years ago, but Fukushima... The, the meltdown uh, happened a year ago last week, and, you know, we get, uh, we get sort of preoccupied with other things, so we weren't able to, to commemorate that dark chapter, but we will tonight. Greg Palace will be here to tell us the story on Fukushima that CNN won't tell you. Uh, and uh, first off, though, another anniversary of sorts, and um, uh, this one uh, equally controversial, And uh, we're looking 15 years back in the Wayback Machine, back to 1997 and uh, March 13th, to be exact. We're talking about the Phoenix Lights. Some call them the Lights Over Phoenix. Anyway, this was a series of widely sighted, unidentified flying objects observed in the skies over the U.S. states of Arizona, Nevada, the Mexican state of Sonora... Thousands of people uh, saw the, um, well, some described it as a huge carpenter square-shaped UFO uh, with five spherical lights, uh, and the U.S. Air Force dismissed the sighting as flares dropped by an A-10 Warthog uh, aircraft that were on training exercises at the Barry Goldwater Range in southwest Arizona. But even the governor of the time, Fife Symington, said that what he saw that night, and he was a witness, what he saw that night was something beyond this world. So we will, for the next uh, 56 minutes and counting, discuss the Phoenix Lights 15 years later. Uh, we'll um, we'll check in with Dr. Lin Katai, internationally acclaimed physician, health educator, one of the preeminent uh, uh, chroniclers of this event, and of course a witness. Steve Blonder will also drop by, another key witness. Of the event of March thirteenth, ninety-seven, and uh, in just a few moments, um, U.S. Uh, UFO investigative reporter Paula Harris will check in with her thoughts. But uh, before that, uh, once again, darkening our doorways, just freshly off the plane uh, from the Carolinas, that's right. Zealand News
3: Director Victor Vigiani. Hello, Victor. Great to be with you again, and that's quite a long introduction to. Uh Something that's going to be very interesting this evening. I I like the way you 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 framed that in terms of your first guest, because I want to point out that there is an am- amazing video, an amazing video of a UFO or multiple UFO sighting over Fukushima just days after the earthquake. Yes, that's that's it, true. That I, I didn't even uh... yeah. Make that connection, but and there is—it's—it's it's an amazing connection that it, and it's on our website at the Zeland Communications website. The actual—it's twelve orbs that uh, manifest themselves, uh, about uh, thirty-five to forty seconds long. And if you want to go to the Zeland Communications website and check out that video, uh, just after the earthquake, uh, I'll tell you it is one. I look at it um, almost on a daily basis, just trying to figure out what it all—all all really means. So it's um, really perplexing.
1: Indeed. Well, what does it all mean, indeed, when we look at the Phoenix Lights? This has been described as the most documented, important mass sighting ever recorded. We're talking about the Phoenix Lights. Mm-hmm. And and still, the um, sort of echoing Roswell, the uh, the government, the military... I don't know they're, they're engaged in the same cover-up, but still not offering any plausible explanations. Well, and there's a lot going yeah. on here that we're not hearing about from That's right. the um, government.
3: Uh, when you take a look at the major events in in ufo history you have to look at roswell obviously as being the first um, i guess historical event that we all kind of latch on to and if you move along through the decades uh... the phoenix lights has to be another uh... benchmark a real important watermark in in the ufo sighting category not only because of what people saw but the number of people they're talking literally thousands of people saw this so uh... if you take a look at what uh, disclosure means one of the things that will lock it away for the government and for the press possibly will be a mass sighting and I think the Phoenix lights is one of the best mass sightings ever anywhere
1: and and uh, we're now learning that I mean it, it wasn't just the evening of March 13th mm-hmm. there were there were sightings in the days leading up to that's correct and I believe on the anniversary there was uh, one of the local uh, stations in Phoenix, during a weather forecast, some strange aerial light phenomena occurred that no meteorologist has been able to explain, and, and Dr. Lynn will maybe um, bring us up to date on that. Mm-hmm. So th- there seems to be a lot of interesting things occurring, as I say, in the days leading up to the day of, and then, of course, uh, the... Um, the, the trail of, of denial and uh,
3: um, ignoring the whole issue by, by the government, the military, it's a very strange case. And one of the things that happened later on, and I'm not sure how long after it happened, maybe we can talk to Lynn about this later, but uh, Luke Air Force Base tried to replicate Yes. the actual dropping of the flares again at some point after um, the the actual sighting how long after the sighting actually event actually happened i'm not sure but they did try to replicate it which is kind of spiritless in my own mind let's uh, take a time
1: out when we come back paula harris italo american photojournalist investigative reporter in the field of extraterrestrial related phenomena research will join us we'll get her thoughts on the 15th anniversary of the phoenix lights victor vigiani from zealand news service in studio And you are listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.
2: You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740.
1: Welcome back. Uh, Dr. Lin Katai, internationally acclaimed physician, health educator, and, of course, one of the key witnesses of the Phoenix Lights, will join us towards the, the tail end of the hour. And uh, also Steve Blonder, uh, another key witness uh, who, has act- who had actually been filming the lights uh, since March 10th. Uh, as I mentioned, um, these sightings didn't just happen on the 13th. There was uh, a number of sightings prior to so Steve Blonder will check in as well. Uh, but first off, uh, joining uh, myself and Victor Vigiani in studio now, uh, on the line is Paula Harris. Welcome, Paula.
4: Well, hello, Richard. Hello. How are you doing, Victor?
3: Just fine, Paula. Great to have you with us. Uh, Paula, well, thank you. let me get your, your,
1: uh, your thoughts. Uh, uh, Phoenix Lights, 15 years later.
4: Well, the Phoenix Lights phenomenon uh, is one of the most important UFO sightings ever. And there's a lot of key issues around it. One of the things that I heard you mention was Fife Symington, the governor. But initially, when this happened and people began calling Francis Barwood, uh, the councilwoman, uh, in order to defuse this, uh, Fife Symington did something really despicable that, as a journalist, I was really upset about. In order to defuse it, he had... Uh, a, one of his staffers come in uh, dressed as a gray alien with a big head and said he had found the uh, answer to the Phoenix Lights and and uh, he presented this alien before the media. Now, later on, he apologized for this because thousands of people had called in and they wanted answers, and that's not the answer they wanted. So one of the things that he understood, and he explained it later, In the film Out of the Blue uh, by, you know, I think it was I Know What I Saw by James Fox. Yes. Uh, And he, he explained that he had to do that because the frenzy around this needed to be diffused. Now, that might be something you'd look at as far as the government to response to a mass sighting like this. They really have no control. I mean, you have that happen in the middle of Toronto. What are the powers that be going to do about that?
1: Right, and only once he left office uh, did he feel free to to, to speak. I mean, imagine the—you know, I, I I can't honestly say that I would blame him for taking that position, uh, given the amount of, you know, control in these situations. I, I would imagine that the, 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 it would have come down on him. So uh, can you really blame him, Paula, for, for taking yeah, that Yeah, t- well,
5: he
4: could have done it a different way, making—see, the problem—and I have to be honest, because I'm an international journalist— The problem with the United States is that this is ridiculed. If it were in Europe or another country, it would be a a matter of national security and everybody would be worried. The last thing they do is present an alien, you know, body or an alien face or a costume. It it, it was a way of diffusing it that's really, like, done here. Uh, and, And even in Roswell, a way of diffusing it in Roswell is a parade or people in costumes or people dressed up like aliens or commercialization of the whole entire thing. There's part of me as a journalist that wish that wouldn't be the way it is because I'd rather have a you know you know I'm involved with exopolitics. I'd rather have a dialogue or a study about this, or even leave it as a big question mark than than ridicule. That's that's just my own personal bias.
3: Paula, how big was uh, Fife Simonton's turnaround on this when he sort of recanted and came forward? How, how, what sort of um, sort of impact did that have internationally as far as you're concerned?
4: Well, it, it had a lot of... He was on Larry King Live. Mm-hmm. When they started... Well, first of all, I saw him on Larry King Live several times, but then when the Phoenix... Li- uh, the uh, Stephenville likes incident happened in 2008 that had a reference a frame of reference because both of these sightings remember both of them changed the consciousness of the cities where they happened for instance in Phoenix it affected a lot of people in Stephenville Texas it affected a lot of people and when uh, Larry King covered this on CNN and thank God he covered it uh, he did it because James Fox was able to to push this through uh, the, the, we looked at it differently. We had a different perspective on this. It was something that changed the people's consciousness. I think Dr. Lynn Katai could talk a little bit about this because, yeah, it was a sighting, but it was a f- sighting that had an effect on, on citizens. And if anybody's studying this so, sociologically, uh, they're probably going, this is what would happen if we had ET intervention on Earth.
3: That's about as close as we could come at that point, wasn't it?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things everybody's studying. I mean, even in the exopolitical arena, what implications? I mean, what would it do to people? What, what about their belief system? What about the military? Yeah, they sent planes out, and in Stephenville sent uh, uh, F-16s out after this thing. And, and also, you know, there are radar reports that support all of this. So what do you do with that? I mean, the big question is, what do you do with that? Why?
1: Why? Uh, I mean, there have been there have been dozens of mass sightings. Why does this one stand out? What's so special about the Phoenix Lights?
4: Oh, this was well. First of all, this was uh, thousands of people that saw this boomerang type craft just go over their heads i think it it also you know blackened the stars they it was so huge now i'm glad you're talking to lynn because lynn is so important because she had seen these orbs uh from her house uh years before the actual march 13th sighting and lynn does really good research she also researched the fact that Uh, around that area near the australia mountains which are called you know are named after the stars the native americans had sightings and that whole area is is very well known for these kinds of sightings so this isn't a one-shot deal in 97 this happened several times over that area
1: Uh, paula i know that you're um busy at work on another book what can you tell us about it
4: well it's it This book that I just finished is called (laughs) UFOs, How Do You Speak to a Ball of Light? And it deals with, uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting interviews. I've interviewed the daughter of Kenneth Arnold, uh, who was, as you know, the the gentleman that started it all. Mm -hmm. He coined the term UFO. And he believed in my interview that the, the, the craft was alive. He had eight sightings. So, and I also interviewed Steve Allen from the Stephenville case. So, you know, the new interviews that I have, and they're always all interviews because I'm going to go on record and tell you I don't know what's happening, but I love to listen to the stories of credible witnesses. So the book is 28 uh, credible witnesses talking about everything from time travel to, uh, you know, Kenneth Arnold's sighting to. Uh, You know, how do you speak to a ball of light? Well, there's the very end I talk about remote viewing, Ingo Swan and Uri Geller. So it's, you know, the whole entire UFO phenomenon covers a a large range of subjects.
1: All right, and this is the revised uh, edition? The
4: revised uh, edition. It's on Amazon.com, plus it's on Kindle.
1: Excellent. Paula, always a delight to to, uh, speak with you. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. All right, Paula Harris, paulaharris.com. It's P-A-O-L-A, harris.com, an unusual spelling for Paula. Check it out. All right, we'll uh, take a quick time out When we come back, another one of the key witnesses of March 13th, 97, the Phoenix Lights, and that would be Steve Blonder, standing by in the wings. And my wingman, as always, when we discuss UFOs and ETs, Victor Vigiani, the director of ZLAN News Network in studio. If you'd like to get on board, join the conversation, 416-360-0740, toll free from out of town and just about
2: anywhere, 1-866-744-740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Greg Pallast, a rogue investigative reporter,
1: Standing by in New York City, Uh, he'll weigh in at midnight on uh, Fukushima one year later, uh, which is documented in part in his uh, new book called uh, Vulture's Picnic. He takes a shot at uh, big oil and the, uh, the big power brokers. Uh, right now, we're discussing the 15th anniversary of the uh, the Phoenix Lights, and uh, joining us on the line right now is another one of the key witnesses of the March 13th, 97 Phoenix Lights event, Steve Blonder. Steve, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
6: I'm great. How are you, Richard? I'm
1: um, well, thank you. And uh, my colleague Victor Vigiani, uh, director of z News, uh, joins us in studio. Say hello to
3: Victor.
6: Hello, Victor. Nice to meet you.
3: Good to have you with us, Steve.
1: Uh, Steve, one of the interesting uh, aspects of uh, the case was uh, this was a, a mass sighting, to be sure, but it wasn't limited to March 13th. Uh, in fact, you were documenting um, uh, sightings at your house three days earlier. Tell us, tell me, tell me about that.
6: Well, earlier in the show, you mentioned something about a recent explosion of light that occurred behind a traffic reporter. Yes. I actually saw a similar phenomenon that night on March 10th, um, which I documented in a, in a book I wrote in 2007. I basically start talking about this explosion of light. Uh, in one of the films that I shot on uh, March 12th, I believe, one of the neighbors tells me also that she's seen a, a a big explosion of light. And I kept asking her, was it white light? Was it white light? Because that's what I saw on March uh, 10th, while I was sitting on the balcony upstairs. And uh, I had basically started seeing this light uh, out in the horizon. We lived very close to the Gila River Indian Reservation. And uh, I thought it was a plane coming in. We weren't too far from the uh, Sky Harbor Airport in terms of uh, the flight patterns. I was in Chandler, off of Chandler Boulevard, south of Chandler, in a town called Awatukee. I was uh, at about uh, 92 feet above, actually 42 feet above the desert floor. So, you know, there's been a lot of misinformation about being up on sky, uh, you know, higher, higher altitude homes that could see, you know, over the mountains. This was not the case with me. Um, and I was also looking over a 2,000-foot altitude mountains. So that's been another uh, misinformation uh, about that. But anyway, I saw this amber light uh, hovering for a long time. Uh, I started looking at it through uh, my video camera to try to magnify it, and uh, all of a sudden I saw it was a pulsating amber-orange-type light that just uh, was mystifying to me. called a neighbor uh, a couple doors down to come over, and they came over and they brought their video cameras and started looking at it. I started shooting it, and I must have seen it appear about... Uh, you know, off and on for about an hour. Uh, we didn't know what to do, so we decided to call the news station and uh, report it to the news. And of course, what they uh, ended up doing was telling us that we were watching the Hale Bob Comet, which was in the sky at the time, but this was in the southwest sky, and the Hale Bob Comet was in the northwest uh, sky or northeast sky. And, uh, we didn't know what to do. Uh, we kind of chalked it up as, uh, interesting experience. I had recorded a lot of the, uh, what I saw. Unfortunately, it got taped over the following night when these lights appeared again. Uh, again, our neighbors came over. Again, uh, we, we witnessed this around nine o'clock for some time. And at that point, I, uh, I was searching the internet looking for similar sightings, because uh, I had no idea what to do with this. And, uh, came across Across a site called the UFO Roundup, and there was similar sightings of this type of phenomenon in Australia. These uh, orange, amber orbs, and they were coming down very low on the horizon, as we'd seen them. And uh, I wrote uh, a note to uh, a guy named Joe Trainer, who ran the site, reporting the event. Uh, and again, it happened on Wednesday. I wrote him again on Wednesday, and he put me in touch. Asked if it was okay to put me in touch with the local MUFON. Uh, Director or field investigator, which I, I did, a guy named Bill Hamilton, and we arranged to meet on Thursday. Funny enough, on that Thursday, I you know I was working for a very uh, high-profile technology company, and we were having meetings. I was bringing these tapes in to show my colleagues and people I reported to and people that reported to me these strange lights, and uh, they were very intrigued. Even one of them decided to go camp out that night on Thursday, March thirteenth. Earlier in the evening on March thirteenth I shot them all over the sky. I saw helicopters, military aircraft well i don 't know if they were military, but I saw plenty of aircraft that night chasing these things. they disappear uh, as soon as i got uh, uh, as soon as they got close as a matter of fact uh, recently over the last couple of years you know we 've been looking at the film in a very detailed way to redo a triangulation that was done in ninety eight and uh, I even noticed a V formation uh, near the astralo range around 8:39 o'clock uh it was three lights in a in a V formation and it's on my website and people can take a look at it but uh bill hamilton showed up around 9:30 or so with a filmographer tom king and i was pretty upset because i thought you know they'd missed everything i would shot them all over the sky and uh, i thought they'd missed them we went through and reviewed the videotapes I, i'd shot and uh, Tom King uh, gave me a lesson on how to shoot in manual focus, because much of what I'd shot was in automatic focus, so they kind of discounted it. Then they wanted to see the sighting location. We went upstairs, and all of a sudden, the light appeared. And it sent them running downstairs to their car to get their equipment, uh, scopes, and all kinds of uh, things that they were carrying around. And that one light, uh, Tom jumped up on the ledge because it was so low in the horizon near the houses that... Um, you know he had to, he had to get up as high as he could and we were on the second floor here uh we shot it and um and when we started talking again about it and then all of a sudden uh another one appears uh Tom sh- starts filming that one he's straddling the ledge of the balcony and then all of a sudden the neighbor yells out look there's another one and another one and all of a sudden we've got four on the right one on the left uh and they're filling the sky and uh you know everybody's uh you know very very excited and loud and you know the the film's been used uh you know on a, a variety of shows including the discovery channel documentary that we reenacted and on the history channel ufo hunters show with been seen, Lynn uses it in the introduction trailer of her 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 show.
3: Okay, let's so, get uh, Victor Vigiani I, in here, Victor. Yeah, I want to ask you, Steve. Um, yeah. there There's a lot of a lot of accounts of, of, of lights and uh, daylight or, or night sightings, um, and in watching the, the, the documentary, uh, I know what I saw by by James Fox. I, I saw and I uh, listened to several people talk about daylight sightings of craft. Now, could you differentiate the the night sightings with lights and and, and all of that and that was caught on film, on, on video, and differentiate that with any kind of uh, you know craft sighting that was sighted either during the the day or or during the evening?
6: Well, all I can say is, on the next day, I went to a tele- telescope store up in Scottsdale mm-hmm. and uh, asked if they were having a UFO sale on telescopes. <laughs> And, uh, it was, you know, I explained that I'd been seeing these lights, and uh, we had a mass sighting the night before, and uh, I, I went and purchased a telescope, and evidently the news stations were calling all the telescope stores to uh, find witnesses, <laughs> and I was pretty mm-hmm. smart of them. And, uh, you know, they got in touch with me, but uh, I, I used the telescope on Saturday, which was the 15th, and I did catch some things in the sky, and it looked much... Different than what I saw on March thirteenth, it looked more like, uh, you know, white objects didn't seem to emit any light. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I, I can't be definitive about it. I've been watching these things for hours all week long. Of course, yeah, a certain amount of fatigue that it's set in.
1: Why do you call uh, the subtitle of your book "Oracle of the Phoenix: Visionary Encounters with the Radical Phoenix Lights"? What do you mean by radical?
6: Well, you know. Uh, my take on it has always been a little bit unique. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I like I said, I worked for a very, you know, high-profile technology company, and, um, uh, you know, I was pretty filled with myself at the time of this sighting and uh, was, you know, ascending with my career, and uh, immediately following the lights, all of a sudden, I, it was almost as if I went in overdrive, and I, I think I kind of overshot a little bit, and my ego took a bit of a... A fall there, and uh, about uh, ten years later, I started um, studying uh, some of the things that I dabbled in when I used to live in L.A. Some of the esoteric sciences and things like that. And I started getting into uh, a Kabbalah, and um, I started to try to, you know, I was I was getting all these these uh, images in my head uh, that were coming from a very strange space. Uh, and it, it was the sighting itself that just kept intruding upon my consciousness. So I started doing more research about the sighting, and I started looking over the Estrella Range, because, you know, there was a lot of discussion around that, you know, were they in front of the mountains, were they in back of the mountains? I wanted to see what was in back of the mountains. And when I looked in back, of, in the back of the mountains, all of a sudden I just started seeing images coming out of the ground that uh, were absolutely confounding. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail here because I know you have a lot to to get to, but I mean, uh, I've described it very much in my book, which is available free right now in an e-book off my site, oracleofthephoenix.com, and uh, the actual satellite images are there. Uh, But there was more to that than just what I was seeing on the ground. There was was connections or coincidences, and now I think even Lynn says there's synchronicity. With a lot of other prophecies that uh, have been put forth by the various different religions, by the Native American myths, including the Hopi, and I did a lot and a lot of research around these myths and uh, there 's a lot of metaphor to be found uh, around this sighting that uh, it is truly confounding, controversial, as I say, but ultimately liberating i mean i 'll give you one example there 's a A astronomical observatory, ancient, like 800 AD, sitting in a Papago Park in in Phoenix. It's called Hole in the Wall, where there's a hole, and when the sun gets to the winter solstice, it shines through that hole and it jumps around throughout this this cave. Well, that hole, when you when you take it uh, at an angle, compass angle to the Estrella Range, it is exactly where Mike Christen's most right orb was that 242-degree azimuth from that point. But not only that, 33 degrees above that is the middle star of Orion's belt, which translates into uh, pearls on a string. and the Hopi call it beads on a string. And as you, you know, can see when you look at the, the siding itself, it, it does look like a, a string of pearls that are going across the astral Mountains. So it's things like that that I get into uh, in the book, uh, and I think it's you know it's very intriguing to look at that uh, and and why they're radical is because they seem to be uh, speaking to all of these different uh, myths and uh, religious texts and you know all kinds of things that seem to be have converged that day in fear.
3: How come there is this connection all the time steve you 've got these things that are in the sky, these craft or these lights or whatever it happens to be, and the air force starts chasing them, and the news media gets into it, and you know people start you know writing books about it and then you get these connections, the spiritual the the, the ethereal aspects of all that. Why do you see the connection there? There always seems to be that connection one way or another in some of these larger sightings and even throughout history in terms of, of the, uh, the UFO phenomenon.
6: Well, you know, I, I have to look to Jacques Vallée to mm-hmm. his interdimensional hypotheses where he basically says these things are the same type of phenomena we've seen over the ages, which appeared in the time as angels or as uh, different types of images. Back in the uh, 1890s, they appeared as airships that were popular at the time. Um, you know, and then you got to look at the metaphor that you know comes in with some of these stories. And you know, for instance, you know, he talks about the English countryside and how people or aliens were coming and abducting dogs. What's you know, the absurdity of it is is Course, interesting, yeah. but yeah. if you look at that as metaphor, what are they taking? They're taking away, in my mind, they're taking away, and they're they're taking away dogma, uh, is what they're taking away in my <laughs> mind. It's it's almost like a dream language. It's, yeah. There's there's an association that is easily made between these types of things: cattle mutilations. You know. Are we? Are, is there an attack against the herd mentality? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this this westernized. Uh, right, you know, right or left brain thinking that we've gotten so far deep into that we've, you know, we've basically ignored the earth. I think these things sort of play themselves out almost in a psychic phenomena kind of way that is not necessarily just psychic but actually becomes physical. That, that, that's my opinion.
3: Yeah. Extraterrestrial, interdimensional, uh, future. Uh, who are they, Steve?
6: Well, interdimensional, I, I think, is the right answer. And I, I you know, I, I don't know who they are. Are they part of our own collective uh, unconscious, as Jung would say? Are they uh, an actual uh, higher level of intelligence that's sort of guiding us along? I mean, you hear these stories about interfering with weapon systems and, you know, near military bases. Uh, you know, I, I think part of the whole thing is the enigmatic nature of it to make us confounded to force us to shake our conventional views into seeing the mystery, being still within the mystery.
3: And so then making that transition and and looking at the way this thing is going to come forward to the man on the street, how do you see the press, and I I hate to bring that into the argument, but how do you see media making the transition from what you've just been talking about to the more nuts and bolts aspect of all this and trying to make sense of this to the public?
6: Well, you know, I mean, I've, I've thought about, you know, I've, I've written a book and I've put it in an essay format. I talk about these visions and I I deal with that. Uh, You know, you hope to get a review, but I mean, the, the the big reaction I get from most people is just uh, silence. They don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's so uh, anti, you know, intellectual or Even though I I use plenty of uh, rational thinking in it, and I've done quite a bit of work on the actual triangulation that proves they're not flares, uh, which is also very important to understand. Um, and It can be seen on my site. Again, uh, if you hit triangulation off oracleofphoenix.com, you'll see all that work. You know, but I've also thought, well, maybe this needs to be in a movie format. You know, of course, you think about well, Steven Spielberg would be the guy to do that. But not recently, I've been thinking. I think Woody Allen would be actually screenwriter and uh, an actor. You know, to try to really, you know, look at the absurdity of it all, because there's plenty of absurdity absurdity attached to it as you really try to go down the path of these connections and people's reactions to them. I mean. It Could be seen out of Annie Hall or Manhattan or Hannah and her sisters easily as this one guy is sort of like trying to wrestle with this this you know absolutely phenomenal experience that they're having.
1: Steve, I asked uh, Paula Harris this question. I'll ask you the same, Uh, and that is, uh, you know, there have been uh, numerous mass sightings uh, throughout the years of, of of UFOs. What ultimately makes this one different?
6: Well, you'll have to read my book to see that. (laughs) I I, I truly believe this this book marks the shift of the ages that everybody's been talking about. You know, if you're familiar with John Major Jenkins' work on the galactic alignment, he talks about a 36-year window between 1980 and 2016, which he marks, you know, 2012 as the peak. But the midpoint of this 36-year cycle is 1998, and this falls right smack in the middle of that cycle. And, uh... So I, I really believe that this this particular sighting uh, is is a marker uh, of this transition. And as we study it further, and as we go deeper and deeper into the content, uh, I think we'll all come to a, a shift in our sort of the balance between the right brain and the left brain as we start to try to process. It.
1: Steve Blonder, author of Oracle of the Phoenix, Visionary Encounters with the Radical Phoenix Lights. The website is oracleofthephoenix.com. Steve, thanks for your time tonight.
6: You're welcome. Thank you very much.
1: All right, Steve Blonder. When we come back, Dr. Lynn Katai, one of the key witnesses, the key chroniclers of the Phoenix Lights, 15 years later, back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on the all-new AM740. Stay with us.
2: Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
1: Welcome back. Investigative reporter Greg Pallast joins us in the last hour of the program to discuss his new book, Vulture's Picnic. And um, in particular, we'll discuss Fukushima, uh, the Fukushima nuclear meltdown one year later. Right now, we're commemorating the 15th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights. And joining us now, internationally acclaimed physician, health educator, who pushed aside her successful medical career to pursue the Phoenix Lights book and internationally award-winning documentary project, she was the leading cutting-edge uh, era of early disease detection and prevention as chief clinical consultant of the Imaging Prevention Wellness Center of the world-renowned Arizona Heart Institute in Phoenix uh, until coming forward after seven years of anonymity as a key witness to the historic and still unexplained mass sighting throughout Arizona on March 13, 1997. And as I mentioned, um, her book, The Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery, that we are not alone. Dr. Lin Katai, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. How are you?
7: Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. And of course, uh,
3: you know Victor Vigiani, my, uh, and my Victor, wingman. Victor,
7: yes. Hi, Victor.
3: How are you doing, Lynn? Great I'm to hear your really voice good. again. Oh, I'm really that's good. great. Thank, that's, that's thank great. you for
7: having me. There is so much to this story. I yeah. hope we can visit again. Oh, for sure. And, and really get into the details. For but sure. Uh, but it's pretty exciting, you know, so celebrating the 15th anniversary of what has become historic not only in the annals of ufology but certainly in the annals of modern history as well.
1: Dr. Lynn, I guess the question is though when do you mark the 15th because I mean as we're learning this wasn't you know just an event that happened March 13th. We had Steve Blonder talking about sightings on March 10th. You were filming you were filming formations and lights in the skies years before. We have reports from Indian reservations. They saw lights years before. When do you mark the 15th anniversary? How far yeah, back do you go? Really
7: good, that's a really good question, because these phenomena have actually been with us since human documentation began, and certainly Native cultures uh, believe in, and have petroglyphs. We have petroglyphs right here uh, etched out in, in stone in South Mountain, and the Estrellas are called uh, you know, the gateway to the stars. And if you look at my... Photos on the uh, on the website, the Phoenix Lights Network website, um, photo page. Uh, you know, in science, we look for repeatability, and these phenomena keep popping up in the same location, right where the Gila River Indian Reservation is. And and they admitted seeing them right above their heads on March 13th. So as far as as far as the 15th anniversary of the Arizona mass sighting, we we that's March March 13th, 1997, because thousands of people, even though myself and Steve and certainly others have seen these phenomena uh, for for many centuries, and, and we were seeing them for days before the mass sighting, certainly in, in weeks, actually. I caught the same phenomena that I would uh, capture on video on March 13th, two months before the mass sighting. And if you look at the photo page on the phoenixlights.net website, I caught this thing head-on, massive mile-wide formation of equidistant lights turning into a V, and it was so unnerving that I called around and found air traffic controllers the next morning who confirmed that they saw the same thing uh, in Class B restricted airspace, which is a 30-mile radius around the center of the airport where anyone that comes into that airspace must call into the tower. Nobody did, and these were 1,000 feet altitude. did not show up on radar when they checked the radar because they were I have to say they were they were not very happy with the situation, and and alarmed, and they took their binoculars to look. And in their own words, they saw six points of light, totally equidistant from each other, massive span over a mile wide that seemed to be attached to something, but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to. And I have to say, many people throughout the state on March 13th would uh, reminisce the the same thing and report the same thing. And they actually saw it turn against the wind. And One of them was a meteorologist, so he knew what he was talking about, and then raised up as a unit and moved behind South Mountain. Now, again, this was Happening prior to March 13th, but on March 13th, thousands of people were outside looking up at the sky purposely to catch a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp comet, which is very clear in the northwest sky. When they also caught a glimpse of these orbs, these balls of light that seemed to be attached to something, a mile-wide V formation or craft. And by the way, guys, there were many things happening for many, many, many hours—not just one or two events, but many events. In fact. If you go on the GAP page, GAP, Geospatial Animation Project on the Phoenix Lights Network website, you'll see a 12-year compilation of hundreds of reports seen by multiple people uh, to the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, Washington, Arizona MUFON, uh, Village Labs, which is a clearinghouse local a year, as well as the councilwoman, former councilwoman and Vice Mayor Francis Barwood, who received over 1,000 reports were compiled by investigators here and illustrated beautifully uh, on on the Gap page uh, to show that there were eight or nine different craft that people saw. Now, whether it was one craft that could morph into looking differently or a parade of different craft, which the investigators that were intimately involved with this investigation do believe because there were a number of things happening at the same time throughout the state, or the perspective from where someone was standing we may never know but the point is that there were many things happening for many hours i mean we're talking over a dozen hours of uh, these ore formations and crafts throughout the state it's fascinating when you look at the
1: doctor then one of the things that we're learning that separates this mass sighting from others is the impact this had on witnesses their psyche a, a spiritual psychic phenomena how would you describe this this impact
7: Absolutely, and that, that's a really good point. In fact, uh, the first third of my book is about the Phoenix Lights event and how it unfolded. I mean, it's it's that in itself is so fascinating, and I hope one day we can visit, because I was intimately involved day by day, uh, pushed my entire medical career aside and kept a meticulous diary of everything, and it's fascinating when you see how it really unfolded that most people don't have a clue unless they, they read the book. But the other thing that I found was not only in real time, Did it affect people very profoundly in a positive way? In fact, six months before the mass sighting, the movie Independence Day came out. And children, interestingly, were usually the first ones to see this mass formation of life coming towards them. And, you know, we are so inundated, and we talk about this in the documentary, with threat, 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 and harm, 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 that our first reaction is fear. And theirs was. They were jumping up and down Independence Day, Independence Day. But as the formation came closer, the craft, not only children, but adults as well, had a calmness take over them. Uh, They they had a joyous, awesome feeling and, and actually a connection to the phenomena in real time. And as it passed by, some of them, you know, the kids wanted to run after it or have their parents get in the car and follow it. It's so intriguing in and of itself just to see... When you look at the data, how it affected people in real time, and certainly flares and blimps or whatever don't affect people in that way. Um, And then long term, actually there were a number of of witnesses that shared with me that they had had near-death experiences as children that was reawakened. By the mass sighting. And I found that really curious because I did too. And I thought, geez, could there possibly be a connection between all unexplained phenomena, whether it's near-death experience, out-of-body experience, or unexplained aerial phenomena that have a mystical light associated with the experience. And lo and behold, when I started looking again, I started finding, because I knew nothing about this topic, and I found studies at university level that confirmed that not only in, and I lay it out very simply in the book, not only is the experience very similar, whether it's unexplained, for, you know, any unexplained phenomena, but I start calling them all up, the UP, and unexplained phenomena, because the after-effect was so positive, the awakening, the enlightenment that happens within an individual who truly experiences an up, an unexplained phenomena experience, that it changes them forever. Their whole world view is forever transformed in, in a positive way, a connectedness to the universe and to the earth and to each other that um, is, is so profound and, and I think very important in all this. It's not just about the nuts and bolts anymore. Exactly, when Victor Vigiani really is,
1: the Victor is a chomping at the bit to get in here, so oh, Victor, go uh, ahead. I
3: want to, you, you spoke earlier, Lynn, about uh, talking to the air, air traffic controllers and mm-hmm. that any craft that come into class, B airspace, have to you know, contact ATC and all of that. Um, first of all, how many ATC people did you talk to? And there
7: was a whole group. Yeah, and, and actually saw uh, what, them. I, I talked to. Them yeah, like what were two. they? What were they
3: like? What were they saying to you?
7: Well, actually, when I, when I first called, and we had a briefing, not only did we have a briefing with a couple of them, and I describe uh, in detail our conversation in the book, um, but they also, you know, initially uh, were very forthright and, and actually did an extra television show and I think a hard copy television show, and then suddenly everything stopped. Um, not only, uh, could nobody get any, any information from them, they wouldn't even answer the phone, and one of them moved out of state. So, you know, it, it, it was very interesting how that transpired too, because at the beginning, in fact, when I first called, it, it's so funny because when I met one of them,
5: the meteorologist,
7: uh, who was also an air traffic controller, very low key guy, and very mellow guy, when he got on the phone, he was more excited than me. He said, did you see this? They were each other different from each other, hovering information at 8.30. I said, yes. He said, well, actually, there were three at 8 o'clock. I said, I saw them, too. And he was thrilled that somebody else had seen them, too. And there was a whole group of them there not only two months before the mass sighting, but during the mass sighting and confirmed. And, again, we had a briefing several weeks later at Village Labs that what they saw was the same thing in the same location, definitely wasn't flares, and was an unknown
3: so they they eventually just clammed up, though. Oh yeah, wow.
7: majorly. Won't even answer. Did you them ever, talk to anyone? Yeah.
3: Did you ever find out from any other sources why or how they were forced to uh, to stop talking? Oh no, to you?
7: no, they, they weren't talking. I mean, it just it just stopped, which you know was uh, very disconcerting for uh, for certainly for those of us that wanted to find out more information and uh, have them confirm as well. But um, you know the other interesting thing, and, and you guys might not know this. Uh, unless you were here or read my book, you wouldn't know this. It was months before there was any kind of explanation at all. I mean, there was nothing. There was no investigation. It was totally bizarre. I mean, here, this low-gliding, some people said it was rooftop. It was close enough to throw a stone at. Mm-hmm. Passes right over people's heads. And we have uh, military and pilots in the documentary. This, this. This passed right over them and they looked into these giant wells of what they would describe as like canisters of, of swimming light, like nothing you can ever imagine. Some people actually saw these orbs detach from the main object, go out into the environment, and then redock with it. Other people would see this thing pass over them and then suddenly take off in, in blank of speed without a sound. That, that was what was so eerie.
1: Dr. Lynn, what happened happened, uh, most recently? It was, I believe, on the actual anniversary date, March 13th, uh, one of the local Phoenix stations, there was an incident on one of the uh, traffic reporter over his shoulder. A
7: few days before. A few days before, okay. A few days before, um, there was a, a bright light that uh, that showed up that, that supposedly was explained um, right before, the day before the fifth uh, light's anniversary as being some kind of a transformer or connection or whatever. But what's really interesting, guys, is that, first of all, just to, to finish a thought before, it was months before a USA Today article came out in June, June 18th, opened our sighting up to international scrutiny. The very next day is when our former governor announced, uh, There was nothing before this, The very next day after that USA Today article came out, we were deluged by media from all over the world, wanting to know why there was an investigation. Once they talked to the witnesses, their descriptions were so detailed and so heartfelt. Suddenly, there was an announcement that the former Governor Symington called an unscheduled conference. He comes marching out, one of his aides in a giant alien head making a big joke of the whole thing, really offended a lot of people a month later. I get a call, because I checked around. I mean, I really tried to do my homework with this, and check and find any logical explanation and called every military base. I, I finally get, the, get a call a Monday after the, the USA Today article, it was July 24th, from the one of the heads of PR at the Air National Guard, and she says, oh, Dr. Lynn, I think we, we know what those lights were back in March. And I said, you do? I said, great. She says, you believe in all these months, this is July end of July, that nobody looked at the log for visiting Air National Guard, and the Merlin Air National Guard was in town sending off flares in Operation Snowbird, which I later found out means diversionary tactical maneuver in military terms. So they may have been sending off flares, but not one person described flare descriptions. But at any rate, she said, that must be what some people saw. And I said, well... When were they in town, Merlin Air National Guard? She said March 1st to the 15th. I said, were they in town in January? She said, oh, no. I said, are you sure? She said, absolutely. I said, well, I have 35-millimeter photographs of the same exact phenomenon in the same location confirmed by air traffic controllers the next morning is appearing in Class B-restricted airspace, 1,000 feet altitude. She says, you never told me that. And then I said, and you're trying to tell me that flares that cannot keep a formation drift and drop with haphazardly with the wind in minutes that have huge smoke trails illuminated by the flare itself and are supposed to illuminate the area around it. No one described that. You're trying to tell me that that flares that that just fall haphazardly stayed in a rock-solid, mile-wide, equidistant V formation for hours? She says, oh, I have a call coming in. I'll get back to
3: you. I'm still waiting. (laughs) Intelligent flares. Very, very intelligent flares. Uh,
1: Quickly, uh, um, uh, Lynn, and and, uh, we just got about a minute here. Um, Steve Blonder was uh, with us um, uh, a few moments ago, and he described the Phoenix Lights phenomena uh, as being a marker in a a transition period. What do you think he meant by that?
7: I, you know, I think that the Phoenix Flights, uh, from all my research, and I've been doing this now, I, I gave up my, my medical career and, and not only did, dedicated myself to the book and the documentary, which keeps evolving in and of itself, it's, uh, one of a dozen international film festivals, but I'm working on a curriculum now, um, for the classroom on this topic for fifth 12th grade, and it is a transition period. I think the, the Phoenix Lights is really a benchmark in, uh, in events that, that cannot be explained or denied, that has really raised the consciousness of, of people worldwide. When I came forward in 2004, from seven years of anonymity, the official and accepted, except for the investigators and the witnesses, explanation for the Phoenix Lights is they were merely military illumination flares. Well, we've come a long way with wonderful witnesses like Steve and, of course, the governor came forward after the 10th anniversary to say that he actually saw the massive craft, and it was otherworldly. And with more and more uh, credible witnesses coming forward and information really on the Internet and social networking getting out there about our wonderful, amazing uh, mass sighting, people around the world are now comparing their similar sightings to the Phoenix flights. And and the biggest thing with this, is, to answer your question, is that uh, what seems to be happening is when these phenomena do happen, they're waking people up one person at a time, not only to their presence in a very gentle, non-threatening way. There hasn't been one, uh, one report of harm, threat, or abduction associated with the Phoenix flights. I can't speak for other things, but Phoenix Lights, that's, that's the case. And the other thing is that they're all also waking us up to the spiritual beings we are, to the positive potential we have. And when you look at the data, it speaks for itself.
1: Dr. Lynn? And I hope people do. Thank you. The, the website is thephoenixlights.net, and uh, we thank you for your time.
7: Thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Lynn Katai.
7: Keep looking up.
3: Victor? Yeah. Thanks for, uh, for joining me as well. It's been a great pleasure this evening. Uh, I'm glad we marked this, this period in time because I feel it's very significant, very, very significant. All right. And also, thanks to Steve
1: Blonder and uh, Paula Harris, of course. We'll take a quick time out on the other side, Fukushima, one year later, and helping us uh, to commemorate that tragic meltdown. Rogue investigative reporter Greg Pallast. Wish you to get a load of this guy. Back with more of him in a moment here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. Bye.
2: Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Show with Richard Sarin from Zuma Radio, AM seven forty. A rather morbid
1: thing to mark the first anniversary of one of the worst nuclear disasters in our history, arguably. Uh, but uh, well, that's the territory into which we are now headed. Fukushima nuclear meltdown uh, one year ago. Well, on. Uh, the 11th, but we're going we're to talk about it tonight, and uh, we're going to do so with a man who has been described as the most important investigative reporter of our time in Britain, where his first reports appeared on BBC television and in the Guardian newspapers, and uh, I love the title of his new book. It's called Vulture's Picnic, In Pursuit of Petroleum Pigs, Power Pirates, and High Finance Fraudsters. A great pleasure to welcome to the program Greg Pallast. Hello, Greg. Do we have Greg with us? Oh, we're just uh, making the connection. The soup cans and the strings, the strings are now being tied. We're making our way to New York City. Greg will be with us uh, in just a moment. And um, in, in his uh, book, Vulture's Picnic, uh, he, he talks about, of course, uh, Fukushima. Uh, but he also talks about the uh, Deep Horizon uh, oil disaster, which occurred two years ago in uh, in April, and perhaps we'll have time to touch on that. But uh, for now, uh, or in the early goings, we're going to discuss uh, Fukushima. Greg, are you there?
8: Hey, I'm with you,
1: Greg. You missed your your wonderful introduction.
8: <laughs> How are you? You can always say it twice. I won't be. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I won't be uh, upset. I love uh, the, the the title of your. I, I, I'm doing okay, but my photographer could be doing better. Zach Roberts, uh, the the cops in New York just beat the hell out of him, slammed him in the head with nightsticks last night while he was trying to uh, photograph the, um, the re-entry in Zuccotti Park of Occupy Wall Street at uh, trying to show the cops his the press badge saying, I'm press. He got slammed in the head again. So, um, dealing with that. So, um, Lovely. Well the, vultures,
1: well, the Vultures Picnic, I mean, you talk about Occupy Wall Street, and that, the, the, the Vultures yeah. you describe as the 1% that are, that are uh, picking on the, uh, the roadkill that would be us, I guess. Uh, is that yep. what Occupy Wall Street is really about?
8: Yeah, I, I think so. I think that, you know, that what Occupy Wall Street has done is channel the... Uh, the frustration of Americans seeing the uh, rich get fabulously richer, billionaires being created by um, by the misery of of others. I mean, the point of Vulture's Picnic is to actually, instead of just say, oh, they're the 1% or they're the super rich or, you know, whatever, it's to actually have you meet these guys and see how they make their money. And... Um, You know, because there's a real question here. I mean, uh, one of the key guys in Vulture's Picnic is Paul the Vulture Singer. And he is the number one donor for Mitt Romney and for the the GOP. And uh, there's people like John Paul and others who I go after in the book. I investigate. And the real question is, are these guys um, vultures hoping for for, uh, the economy to die so they can pick our carcass? Or are they job creators, as Romney would say? This is a this is really a vital question. And obviously the people that occupy Wall Street um, feel that um, that we're being shafted. They see this massive difference in money. What I do is I give you their names, I let you meet their trophy wives, and I show you how they actually go about the game, which isn't very pleasant. Um, you know, guys like Paul the Vulture Singer, who, you know, the big funder for Romney from Re- – who runs a group called Restore Our Future, he literally makes his money when people and nations and economies die. He's made billions of dollars, now worth about $4 billion. uh, John Paulson of Restore Our Future earned about $3 billion in a single year, more than any person on the planet has earned in a year, by not only betting against the mortgage market, but by helping push it over a cliff. So these guys make their money on suffering and they're very very happy about the recession they couldn't do that you know they're they're raking it in at a, at a level that we've never seen in American history
5: yeah
1: these are the the, Quite astonishing. the the people that when economies start to go down the drain they always manage to be the drain
8: yeah they're collecting well in the case of like Paul the vulture singer I was just in the Congo and you'll see you know in vultures picnic I go all over the planet chasing yeah you them. get around yeah.
1: Azerbaijani and and uh, the Congo and you're, you're, you're well the, Arctic, traveled.
8: the Amazon, uh, Africa, Congo. you name it. Uh, yeah, a lot of frequent flyer miles in this, uh, in this book in Vulture's Picnic. So um, yeah, so in the case of, of Romney's guy, he seizes the, the debts. He's like an international repo man he, and, he, and he's a, uh, like an international debt collector on nations that are dying. Uh, the Congo's the poorest nation. there's two Congos. they're the poorest nations the world and he is going out to um uh he paid about 10 billion dollars for the right to collect the debt on uh, one of the congo nations and so far for his 10 million he's collecting a half a billion 50 times what he paid and he's still collecting he, and he sees his oil on the high he's like a legal, you know a pseudo legalized pirate yeah, i have to say that nations like england and germany and holland even china uh, consider Paul Singer, the vulture, an outlaw. His, his his activities are outlawed. He's a pirate as far as they're concerned. But in the U.S., you know, the uh, the other nations' outlaws are our job creators. They're the guys who are calling the shots in our elections. And by the way, I don't mean to just pick on the funders for the Republicans, though they seem to be getting most of this uh, vulture money. Uh, the vultures um, rent Democrats when they have to. Singer, for example... Has hired the former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Bob Strauss. So you know they they own the Republican Party, but they rent the Democrats.
1: Well, it's it's a one party system with two heads, essentially, correct?
8: Yeah, there's one party, the party of the cash.
1: Greg yeah. Pallast is with us. Uh, I, I wanted, uh, I, I'd love to talk to you about you know a whole host of things, including you know what's going down in, in Greece and and uh, sure. and all that. But uh, let's talk about uh, Fukushima uh, first of all. Okay. You you. Uh, came into possession of a very interesting little notebook. Uh, and I'd like, yes. to, I'd like you to tell us about the, uh, the content of that n- notebook, if you could.
8: Yeah, I should mention that I was a, uh, the head of the racketeering investigation of the U.S. government against nuclear plant builders back in the 80s. I used to be a racketeering investigator before his investigative report. That's how I got a lot of his stuff. Um, and when the Fukushima plant started go- m- melting down, Well, I said I pulled out of my files from the racketeering investigations some stuff I wasn't supposed to keep, but you know, shoot me, um, including a couple of engineers' notebooks. One by the guys that test these nuclear plants, um, who and and the notebook says, "No way on earth can this plant withstand an earthquake." They they knew. that that this plant and this design plant can't withstand an earthquake. They, They knew it. That's right in the engineer's notebook, which I got. And the emergency diesel generators, these are the big giant machines, the big pumps that are supposed to keep the reactor cool. They failed, and we were given this cockamamie story that they were drowned by the tsunami, but there's no such picture of that, and they're up way behind the reactor, high up. They weren't drowned. They committed suicide. These emergency diesel generators don't work in an emergency. They're big, they're greasy, but they're old cruise ship engines that just, when you turn them on, they crack because you've never seen a cruise ship leave a dock at 11,000 miles an hour, and these things have to go on double speed at in 12 seconds, and they can't. It's a phony. And I have the engineer's notebooks uh, that say that these that these diesels, can't withstand the type of stress that happens in emergencies. Emergency diesel generators don't work in emergencies. They could use Christmas tinsel around the plants. It would be just as safe. Every plant in the United States has that design.
1: Now, uh, we were told that uh, the, the Fukushima was built to withstand an 8.0 earthquake uh, on the Richter scale, and but this one was a
5: 9.
8: Yeah, it but was that's... a 9. <laughs> but it was in the Pacific Ocean, it was a 9. So you know, like a hundred miles out from, by the time it hit Fukushima, it was below 8.0 on a Richter scale. They they actually use a measure called Galileo's, and the plant was be built to 600 Galileo's, which is like 8.0 on Richter, roughly. And um, so it should have been perfectly fine because it was only 550 shake. So when it got there, you know, you know, if you have an earthquake in in Los Angeles, in San Diego, the windows are just rattling. So that's what happens. It was, but so then why did it go down again? Because we knew that they faked the earthquake proofing. Every plant on the planet has to have what's called uh, a seismic qualification test. It must be able to withstand shaking. And even if you're near, um, if you're in an area with a nuclear plant, if you're not on the west coast of the U.S. where they put plants on fault lines, the morons. Um, the that doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about an earthquake because a seismic event can be anything that shakes a containment, like a you know like a valentine from Al Qaeda or something, anything that will shake that building is a seismic event. So look out. Uh, and th- that's one of the problems is that you know these these things. And by the way, they don't do it because they want to fry you. That they want these plants to melt down or that they're crazy. Um, they're just greedy. They, it costs money to fix a plant so that it can withstand. A major earthquake. How much it would it have cost? Money.
1: How much would it have cost Tokyo Electric if they had shut down and repaired?
8: God, they have about like, just the two, the six units there would have been about three billion dollars.
1: Three upgrade. billion.
8: Yeah, I mean, you know.
1: And what happened to the engineering ter- team that that basically flunked? Uh, the the general uh, fukushima you know in terms of the, the seismic standards what what happened to them when they when they reported and said listen you know we're giving it a failing grade and we, and we need to report this because the law says we have to report this
8: yeah um, stone and webster company um, I actually brought this information before a federal grand jury which did find them guilty of co-conspiracy for racketeering so you'd think that kind of put them out of business and they did Stone Webster did have to, it went under, but then it was bought, it was taken over by a company called Shaw Construction.
1: Oh, where have we heard that before?
8: Now the the, uh, U.S., now the Obama administration has approved the building of four new nuclear plants, first in 30 years in the U.S., all four are designated to be built by Shaw Construction.
0: Oh, hooray. The
8: same guys that faked the earthquake proofing, <laughs> that faked the diesel generator test. And here's, here's my favorite. Well, they said, well, don't worry, because the plant at South Texas, this was in May, uh, in, just before the Fukushima break, uh, of course. Uh, they said, don't worry. What we're going to do is we're going to bring in the best nuclear operators in the world to run the U.S. plant and, and the new U.S. plant in Texas. We're going to bring in Tokyo Electric Power.
5: <laughs>
8: so, you know, it's like this is what we're getting. We've got Tokyo Electric and, and these con artists we've had before. Plus, if you look in Vultures Picnic, I have all this in Vultures Picnic, all these notebooks and everything else. In fact, people that can actually see these documents, we just loaded them up in something called a file cabinet. On, on our website, VulturesPicnic.org, you can see these notebooks. And, um, and some of the raw evidence from the BP spill, from Greece, uh, from all these things we went into with Paul the Vulture Singer. You can see some of these internal documents that I get all the time as part of my investigative work at vulturespicnic.org. So people know when I say, oh, I've got these documents, books, you should be able to see them, see these documents. Um, and, you know, in the case of, um, of Vulture's Picnic, uh, we also got something called the radioactive brick, which came through the mail, you know, through the mail. No return address or one that I wouldn't look at, um, which was internal documents from the from the one of the new nuclear plants being built, the one with, with Tokyo Electric Power. And it was very clear, looking at this stuff, that they had faked the pricing on this. Remember they, they get we're we're backing them up. The US Treasury is providing a guarantee on these plants. Because they bid they said that they could build these plants for five billion bucks each, which is a lot of money. In the nuclear world, that's cheap, five billion. But the internal documents said they knew that it would cost seven billion minimum. So they get the contract; it's a con, and then they say, "Oops, gee, it costs more." Oh, because of Fukushima, we got to add some stuff. Now it's seven billion, or it's nine billion, or it's twelve billion, and you and I are in the hook. And it's a con; it's a fraud because to, to actually, frankly, build a uh, you could build a safe nuclear plant, but no one could afford it.
1: Hey, have you ever followed up with um, the engineer? Was it Weisel? Uh, Gentlemen, Yeah, Bob Weasel. Weasel. Well,
8: like I said, we, we actually had a federal trial. Uh, we, uh, we had a trial, and we put, um, his, we put his boss under oath. Who said, yes, um, Weasel told me that he was ordered that uh, uh, the boss's boss ordered uh, them to change the numbers, uh, to, to change uh, failed to passed to uh, a good grade. Um, same with diesel generators.
1: So why didn't anyone and do the perp they... walk? Why didn't anyone do the perp walk? I mean, that's...
8: <laughs> that, that's a, Well, that's a, well. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the problems is, is that under racketeering, you'll love this. I know the Supreme Court has said that, that corporations are people. But n- power corporations, the Supreme Court ruled, cannot be liable for racketeering. They're not subject to the racketeering laws of the United States. So even though I was able to get this one uh, um, operator, um, there was a $4 billion judgment, which they settled for $400 million, But they went out of business. But then again, they came back as Shaw. Um, but, yeah, why aren't, these, why aren't there criminal cases? Um, very, very good question. Because, uh, one, the Supreme Court was hostile, but these guys have a lot. These are political cases. They're very, very difficult to bring. So the, the one, company yeah, that, able to bring a civil suit.
1: The company that brought you Fukushima is now bringing you four new nuclear plant, pl- plants in uh, the United States. Where are they to be located?
8: Okay, the, the uh, company, the contractor, is located now in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, the, and the other is that and Tokyo Electric Power, of course, is based out of Tokyo. Um, And this guy, this Operation Shaw, you'll see, also plays another role in in, uh, the Vulture's Picnic, because I'm investigating BP all over the world, I'll go to the Gulf.
1: Yeah, we'll talk about about that when we come back.
8: That the the government did, uh, the the state of Louisiana demanded the federal government pay a third of a billion dollars to build this big sand dune at the edge of of the bayous to supposedly protect the, the bayous from oil coming in. Well, there's hardly any oil coming in, but they built these gigantic sand dune. It cost a third of a billion dollars, and it will wash away. It's supposed to, and that was Shaw Construction because they're they're the number one donors to Bobby Jindal, the, go- the governor of Louisiana. So he made sure that they got this like <laughs> build a big. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's like basically build a big sand pile which washes away. Was I know completely you,
1: you got to laugh because if you know. don't laugh, you'd cry. It does. It sounds like a Terry Gilliam screenplay, doesn't it?
8: Yeah, it does. It will be
1: made to uh, film, too. All right, but we'll it, uh, take a time out. When we come back, <laughs> Greg Palast, my guest, uh, the author of Vulture's Picnic in Pursuit of Petroleum Pigs, Power Pirates, and High Finance Fraudsters. Get on board. Questions and comments, 416 Toll free from Maine to Minnesota and south to the Carolinas, 866-744-740.
2: When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740.
1: Welcome back. Greg Pallast is with us. Vulture's Picnic... Um, well, uh, put aside uh, Fukushima for now, but obviously, uh, you know, keep an eye on those new nuclear plants. Brought to you by uh, uh, Shaw Construction and uh, Tokyo Electric. That must instill a lot of confidence. Um,
8: well, let's... I mean, keep, keep yeah, keep in mind that this is Internet. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission um, basically regulates all nuclear plants all over the planet, not just the U.S. And Shaw Construction is even rebuilding. They've been designated to rebuild uh, Fukushima. <laughs> Oh Lord you know, so the, It gets is better is, and better there's not really there's a very few operators and uh you know, um used to be Halliburton was the big one now uh, and Bechtel but now it's Shaw. And uh yeah. So let's go on to a happier topic.
1: Yes, Hitler's birthday. Uh okay, yes. and your ex wife's right. I understand. Birthday,
8: April <laughs> April twentieth, two thousand ten, the Deepwater horizon blows up. At April uh yeah, it's Hitler's birthday, my ex wife's and <laughs>
5: um,
8: and, uh, and uh, the deep water rising explosion. The, the right. column of smoke goes up. I'm watching this from Vegas on TV with my sidekick, Miss Bad Penny, and, and, um, and, when, and she gets a message from the other side of the world, the Caspian Sea, saying, you know, this has happened before, but I can't talk on this IT system, you know, cuts off. And so that sends us off to the other side of the planet to what I call the Islamic Republic of BP, Azerbaijan, Baku, the capital, and with yes. a kind of cockamamie story to get our way into this closed state. It's basically an oil kingdom uh, run by uh, MI6 and CIA and the old KGB chief, who's now he's. Transformed himself, this guy who likes to call himself Baba Grandpa,
3: Grandpa, Grandpa L. Lewis. <laughs> in fact, he
8: doesn't, yeah, and if you don't call him Grandpa, he pulls out your fingernail. But um, <laughs> just
1: like my Grandpa, <laughs> the, sure.
8: Well, yeah, like you know, like both Grandpas. And um, he's the old KGB chief. They did have an elected uh, president, but the elected president made the mistake of not giving British Petroleum an exclusive contract to drill oil in the Caspian Sea. So that, that mistake was corrected by MI6 giving the old KGB chief some weaponry in, uh, in our, and uh, money and uh, overthrowing the elected president. Four months later, he gives BP their exclusive drilling contract, no bid. And, um, and uh, you know, the U.S. gets its piece uh, because BP buys Amoco, American oil company, so that uh, everyone shares in the uh, booty and looty And uh, and uh, now this oil kingdom goes from being an impoverished state under uh, the Soviet police state to a very impoverished state under a very vicious police state. But at least they've got a really hot first lady. Um, She is uh, worth about a half a billion dollars, even though her husband, the president, only makes a hundred bucks a month. I guess she's a very frugal. You know, she saves apparently, um, <laughs> and, but, and, but she was elected. She was elected the most by Esquire magazine, elected the the sexiest Muslim woman on the planet.
1: There you go. And and Azerbaijan boasts the the tallest flagpole. I'm wondering if there's a connection.
8: <laughs> yeah, or, or in in, in uh, Baba's dreams. But uh, so you know, they uh, this is. So we go there, I I sneak in with uh, this crazy, uh, you know, some goofy stories to get my camera into Azerbaijan and um, take off across the desert, there's no road, um, towards the BP Terminal to get the evidence. Um, Now, and I get busted, someone's ratted us out, you know, they say, give us your film. Of course, we got fake press patch badge, uh, badges. They they got real guns, so we give them the film. Seems reasonable, but they didn't take my little uh, my pen, which was one of those Austin Powers jobs that has the camera inside the pen. That bad penny, Ms. Bad Penny, given me. That's her name, by the way, uh, real name. Uh, and um, I'll, I'll buy into it. Okay, why not? And <laughs> and uh, so we came out with the evidence, and sure enough, there had been a prior blowout. On the Caspian. Just like the BP blowout in the Gulf, but two years earlier, it happened in the Caspian Sea. BP, Transocean rig, same thing, same cause, which is that they use this cheap, crap cement.
1: With the nitrogen.
8: Yeah, with nitrogen-laced. You put nitrogen in cement, it dries quicker, but you put nitrogen in in anything, and it makes bubbles, right? And you put bubbles in with high pressure, boom, that, that cement just blows right out. So that's what happened. The Caspian Sea—they covered it up because it really saves them millions and millions and millions of dollars to speed up the the drilling uh, process and the cementing process. Um, and this is cement that's
1: made by Halliburton, isn't it?
8: Yes, it's a Halliburton formula, and uh, the Halliburton sold it directly in the Gulf. And so, and BP had the had the chutzpah to say. Um, that Halliburton didn't tell them that the cement could fail. This is in the Deepwater Rising. Of course, they didn't have to tell them that the cement could fail because BP watched the cement fail the Caspian Sea two years earlier, which means, by the way, it wasn't an accident, the Deepwater Rising. It's a homicide, negligent homicide. They planned right. plan it, but it's like they... You know, when they use the same process, they you know, but they wh- knew it could very well happen
1: in the Caspian um, um, accident. I mean, how? What was the carnage there? How many? How many fatalities?
8: It was unbelievable luck um, in the case that what happens as soon as methane, as soon as you have a blowout with the cement falling all over the place, methane comes in, and they order and the platforms are are ordered dark, so there could be no no lights, nothing that could cause a spark. And everyone, and and people start jumping off the rigs. You're talking like 80 feet into the water, uh, which happened both deep water horizon and in the Caspian. And then they also try to load into boats. In the Caspian Sea, by a miracle, there happened a, a rescue ship nearby, which pulled everyone off, about 200 people. Somehow, which was just a, and not you know not a spark, and so it didn't blow, which is incredible. One way, and but then the um, in the Gulf, they one of the workers started pounding apparently on the um, pounding on the uh, emergency button to set to set off the blowout preventers because they weren't working, and he kept pounding that thing until. A spark was lit, and um, he and ten other people were vaporized. And, uh, and so
6: that's what happened there.
1: Now, how do you keep? But but, but in the Caspian, I mean, it w- was there uh, was there you know oil leakage into the into the Caspian Sea? I mean, how how do you keep something oh, like yeah. that quiet?
8: Um, well, the main thing though is was of course with the blowout is that the whole thing failed, and you had a um, and it filled up with methane and it didn't explode it let it dissipate. The problem in the Caspian is in the, in the deep water horizon, when it blew, it sank and then snapped all the pipe right. into the tubes and just started pouring out. In the case of the, uh, the Caspian, you just have an endless, non-stop leak. They've turned the Caspian Sea into a total toxic toilet now. It used to be the source of almost all the world's caviar, of course, but uh, over 90% of the sturgeon have died now, and it's pretty much becoming very rapidly with this oil seepage now it's becoming a total dead zone dead sea and um, it's really awful well, um, I can I and, can
1: almost yeah. understand why we didn't hear about it in, in North America because we have this firewall you know ar- around information here but was this not picked well, up in the yeah. foreign press
8: No 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 they lied BP that's very very important BP went through a full you know everyone had a lie it was very, very difficult for me to get the truth. And um, I had witnesses when I got there. You know, I had evidence, but I had two witnesses disappeared. A woman was, uh, they beat the hell out of her. And, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, if, when you read Vulture's Picnic, the, the chapter called uh, Lady Babaland, uh, um, the Islamic Republic of BP, uh, you see the, you know, it, they just create a terror state in addition uh, BP wanted it, lied to the United States government. Under the law, BP has to notify the Securities Exchange Commission of an event. So what they, the BP did is they simply lied to, this, to the US, uh, to Securities Exchange Commission, U.S. regulators. They said under oath nothing bad had happened in deep water. And to the SEC, they said, oh, was it, that they evacuated this platform because that they couldn't cover up because they stopped production in the Caspian Sea. They evacuated as a precaution that it was like a natural leak near near the, uh, uh, the the rig when in fact it had blown out there was cement all over the place, it was filled with methane it was the exact same thing, but they lied, just said it was you know mother nature they blame you know it's, oh there 's a natural gas leak, uh, some type of crack in the ocean floor, and so it was a bogus story, but the U.S. oil companies, because the U.S. oil companies were the partners of BP, and they say, what the hell happened? We're not getting any oil. We want an explanation. So they, they were told, but then they realized they all had to cover it up. You know, who else was told? Condi Rice, the United States State Department, and I'm not guessing because that's in the WikiLeaks cables.
5: Uh-huh. They
8: talk about it, and, that was complete, and so the State Department wouldn't even tell the rest of the U.S. government because they want to tell the regulators they'll clamp down on oil production in the U.S. I mean, this stuff has to, it would have to stop. Uh, now, and by the way, it's still not known in the U.S. I mean, uh, um, you know, as your broadcast goes in and the book gets around Vulture's Picnic, it may get around, but, you know, with the so-called settlement of the BP case...
1: Yeah, they avoided... I mean, they,
8: they, yeah.
1: That, I mean, that's another scandal. I mean, they basically, they, they, uh, they, they cost BP
8: nothing yeah and because they got about they had to put in an extra uh seven point eight billion, but they will get about that much money from their partners and contractors so the the money that they're putting in as uh, part of this this uh, new settlement deal is that's out about zero for BP so they get away with it again, and when I say again, that's because bP was as responsible as Exxon in the breakup of the Exxon Valdez. It's another chapter, because I uh, I did the racketeering investigation uh, for the owners of the shoreline in Alaska, the Chugach natives. And what we found is that British Petroleum was, you know, Exxon, I'm not letting them off the hook. It wasn't a drunken captain. They turned off the radar on the ship. Okay, they had a GPS, which is too... Those days it was really expensive and complicated, so they just turned it off. So they were going blind, and um, that's Exxon. But the ship hit at Bly Island, Bly Reef, and uh, named after Captain Bly, the same guy you know from uh, the Mutiny on the Bounty, same mm-hmm. guy. Um, and kept the uh, Bly Reef, British Petroleum had promised that there'd be all kinds of safety equipment at that island, all this equipment to uh, contain an oil spill, where well, you basically put rubber called boom around an oil well. It's like a big oil well condom. Or, you, or if your ship goes, it's a, you put it around an oil well or a ship like the XFLDs. It should have been no big deal to contain that oil and suck it out. It was not bad weather. Uh, but they had lied. They said this stuff was out there, but if who's going to check out in the middle of the, like, nowhere? There's just these uh, Chugach natives out there. No one's out there. And so there was, they had lied and said that this equipment was there when it wasn't. They said that there were crews that would put the equipment out, like a kind of fire department for oil spills. That was supposed to be manned by the natives who lived there, but the natives were fired. So they didn't have the equipment, they didn't have the authority, they had the training, but they couldn't get, there was no equipment to get to. So they just, you know, that the natives actually watched the ship come in to the reef. They just stood there and... Their old job had been to respond to the spill, and they couldn't do nothing. So that was it.
5: The well, uh, so yeah.
8: British Petroleum got away with it there. They paid nothing. Right. It was completely covered by uh, the BP's cost. was completely covered by an insurance fund. So they, they thought, well, in the, in the Gulf, we can do it again. I mean, and it doesn't cost anything.
1: And because of the settlement yeah. now, none of this, a lot of this uh, woe and, and, and scandal is not going to come to public light because they're going to avoid a lengthy trial.
8: Yeah, there were 72 million pages of documents that were pulled from the company and its its contractors that they had to give up. And one thing that they're doing with this settlement is it all, it's 72 million documents, you hit the delete button, they disappear.
1: So we're not going to find out about all of the miscarriages and the cancer and the fetal abnormalities?
8: You're not going to find out all the things that they have said that you know, they were supposed to do, and that they, they knew the base, that the law preventers wouldn't work. They knew about, obviously, the cement would fail because it had failed before all these things would come out if you had a real trial. And now Obama can still have a federal trial, and the states can still have trials, but they won't. The state, Bobby Jindal, is so greased up by the, uh, by the oil industry, you know, he's... <laughs> He even slips out of bed. And then the uh, same with Haley uh, Barber who is the governor of Mississippi who is chairman of the of the Republican Party. Oh, the guy that
1: likes to pardon yeah. axe murders.
8: Yeah, another slippery <laughs> lovely cat, you know. Um and uh you know, so and then Obama's already cut his deal. Part of the settlement agreement, by the way, was that any payments BP would have to be made. Could only be made from the profits the company obtained from drilling in the Gulf. We basically guaranteed that they get to the drill and make a profit, and if they don't, they don't pay anything.
1: And so, uh, well, and and now of course we have uh, a drilling okayed for um, uh, Alaska, up off uh, the coast right. of Alaska. So, well, you so you here know, one of we go the again.
8: Stories is I I I end up I go up to the uh, above the Arctic Circle after I get back from Azerbaijan, because I get called by the um, chief of intelligence of the. Free Republic of the Arctic, which I thought was a joke, and so I found out he's working with the—he was actually working with the uh, great Eskimo leader Etok, and um, they brought me up to the Arctic to show me that they were going to try to drill offshore because they were tagging polar bears, and they—you know—said the only reason they're going to tag polar bears is to move them. And by the way, have you seen these Coca-Cola cans with little bears on them? Yes, yes, yeah. That is. You know, I doubt if Coke understands what they're part of. Um, you know, it's like if you give a every if you buy one of those Coke cans and give them a dollar, they'll have a they'll they'll put a bear in a sanctuary, a polar bear in a sanctuary. Now, polar bears already have a sanctuary it's called the Polar Cap. <laughs> they're going to move them so they can drill under them, where they are now. Uh, that's the point. You're going to take these endangered species. Normally, you can't move an endangered species. They're just going to take. The, they're just going to get. There won't be any endangered species that they have to worry about because they're just going to move them into the Coca-Cola Zoo.
1: That's all right. Everybody <laughs> out of the pool.
8: <laughs> yeah. And I went up there, though. I did have um, a disagreement with the polar It was kind of a, um, <laughs> i had a, a couple polar bears that were playing around, and then one of them got curious. to are coming at the camera, and I was with the... Uh, um, The chief of this village, um, and he had an old Winchester. It looked like it was from an old cowboy movie. And I realized that thing ain't gonna stop a polar bear. (laughs) It was like a toothpick to a polar bear, right? Sure. And uh, I should—I'm laughing now. Uh, Well, you can't,
3: sure, because
1: you're alive. (laughs) And
8: um, you know, so but the guy was brilliant. He just—he just like shot in between the polar bear's legs. And it shot snow into its face, and it shook it off. It's like, "Hey, dude, you know, be cool." And it's like just shook its head and, and then went trotted off the other way. And um, and I thought, oh, I guess that happens all the time. And he and then the, the chief was like really shaking. He said, in his whole life, that has never happened. And normally, once, once they charge and come at you, that's the end of the game. Your lunch.
3: Well, now uh, you've stared so, down. You
8: know, I mean, I can't say it was very dramatic. I wasn't very scared because I didn't know how stupid I was at the
1: time. <laughs> uh, well, you've stared down the secret police in Azerbaijani and uh, and polar bears in the high Arctic. Uh, I mean, what else is left? Uh, Greg Palace stays with us a few moments yet. Back with more of the conspiracy conspiracy show here on AM seven forty.
2: The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM seven forty. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Uh, Greg Palace stays with us, author of The
1: Vultures, A Picnic. And uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about, although it's all interconnected, and, and, uh, you know, these um, financiers... uh, Explain how how the IMF and, and the central the central bank fraudsters and so forth are, in fact, uh, used to cover for, for big oil. Because you make that point in the book. Do we have Greg with us still? Is he there? Greg, are okay, you there?
8: am I with you now? You are, sir. Okay, uh, good, yeah. Yeah, one of the things um, that that's uh, you know, happened with the World Bank and, and IMF, et cetera. And, and I have a ton of documents, of course, from, uh, when I say, of course, there's a chapter I have where I was able to get about 5,000 pages of documents from the WTO, the IMF, World Bank. I, I authenticated these two ways, one with uh, Joe Stiglitz, who won the Nobel Prize. He used to be chief economist at the World Bank. He wasn't the source of those. And the WTO documents, I actually was able to meet with the head of the WTO and said, is this stuff for real? And he tried to talk it away, but he, yeah, he authenticated my doc- documents. What's frightening is that basically if nations don't turn over their oil and their uranium and gold resources, they, they get hung high by the WTO and the IMF World Bank. They get their, they get their uh, finance, finances choked off. In the case of Ecuador, for example, which... Um, had uh, sold off its oil to uh, Chevron, Texaco, and to Occidental. Al Gore's families connect. Um, they started taking it back because the uh, the Chevron had was poisoning people everywhere, just dumping oil residue all over the Amazon. And Occidental um, was uh, basically cheating on the oil contracts so they got rid of them. So then they were told, if you don't, um, you know, if you don't give back the uh, um, the oil properties to the oil companies or otherwise sell them off, we're gonna we're gonna squeeze your economy until uh, your eyes pop, which they
6: try to do.
1: Well, how, do, how does how do these economic hitmen? If I can use that term, work. How do they get, for example, Greece on the hook? I mean, I understand that there's this, you know, this problem. They mm-hmm. have a social welfare program in, in Greece, and they have a bloated bureaucracy, and we've experienced it firsthand in, well, in our it. Yeah. But Who but how do it. they? Yes, but but that's not the whole problem. There obviously there's no, something else that no,
8: no, no, not at all. Greece is a crime scene, and we have it in the book. And by the way, what I had in the book has now been confirmed by the former uh, pri- uh, finance minister. So I'll tell you the story, and which is now. Uh, Before, it was put together by me with uh, my quadrilingual uh, uh, assist of of this bad penny. But uh, now it's all confirmed. What happened was that it greased the crime scene. It's not about lazy Greeks, you know, just sit around uh, drinking ouzo all day after they've retired at the age of 19. We're talking (laughs) where... That's not so far from the truth. Yeah. I mean, what what happened was that to stay in the euro, to become part of the euro... Nations have to say that they have virtually a balanced budget, no more than a 3% deficit. So they hide their deficits. And in the case of the Greek government, they cut a secret deal with Goldman Sachs, which took, which took euros from the Greek treasury, converted them to yens, then to dollars, and back to euros. In the transaction, they pretended that Goldman had lost billions of dollars. Now, the Goldman never deliberately loses billions of dollars, never loses billions of dollars. It doesn't doesn't happen, okay? It was a fake transaction, so the Greek government could show that it it had a gain and no no deficit.
1: So it could qualify
8: to get into
5: the EU. Total scam,
8: complete, utter fraud. Right. Goldman has paid secretly $400 million. That's nearly a half a billion dollars a year to maintain this scam and keep running it. And besides, uh, so they get the fee. Um, and, and, of course, the Greek government has to pay secretly these massive charges, interest charges on this money that is ultimately owed back to Goldman, which is and to, and to Goldman's clients who've been, who they've dumped uh, this stuff on, these weird uh, securities on, who don't even know what the hell they've gotten. Um, the whole thing blows up on May 5th. Of 2010, right after the Deepwater Horizon. And when the Greek government, the, a new Greek government has said, oh my God, we just found out that we, you know, we don't have a 3% deficit. We have a 20% deficit. We're, you know, we're, we're sunk. Goldman's off the hook. No one accuses Goldman, right? They're running off. They still get to keep their fees. And they start making money on, on, uh, the derivatives. And on the, uh, um, is basically the, uh, credit default swaps. It's basically like default insurance that they were selling. Yeah, they're basically, they basically
1: betting go- on Greece they, to they fail. They push
8: the government towards default, and then they sell the insurance, and they collect the fees. Now, when I was a racketeering investigator, just so you know, you pull a scam like that, it's a fraud. It's called a fraud upon the market. Um,
1: well, as your pappy used you to say, the best crime is the legalized I
8: mean, now, um, the, you know, was it the... Um, you know the the CEO of Goldman said they're doing God's work. I didn't know that that <laughs> that God was like Gambino and <laughs> you know I, I, you know what God is that. Uh, but yeah, it, it, pure absolute crime. I mean, I don't know what else you call it. It's it's a complete. It's used to be felony crime fraud. I mean, I don't know what you call it now. I guess it's job creating, right?
1: Well, it's it's as your as your dad used to say. Uh, it's it's or your was it your grandfather legalized uh, legalized crime, right? That's the best kind. Yeah. And yeah, so,
8: said, and, the best kind of crime is legal crime. And, my my, my great uncle Max was a uh, um, ran was a mobster who competed and lost against Al Capone uh, in Chicago. Uh, but uh, you know, he said, you know, even Capone was you know a fool because you know he was running numbers rackets and and, uh, and booze and gambling and, and that's small stuff. And then legalized crime is, is where it's at.
1: And then to add insult you know? to injury, once uh, Greece or Ecuador or whatever country um, is is on the hook for these uh, loans, then they have to have this fire sale and they start selling off assets. And what Germany couldn't uh, succeed in doing in 1945, uh, they do now by buying, uh, I don't know, everything from the, uh, the, the Acropolis to everything with pennies on the dollar. I'm expecting yeah, to see a star.
8: Bu- you want to buy, you want, if you want a really nice private beach, they're selling off their, you know, their national parks, their beaches, uh, post office, um, f- um, fire stations. I mean, you name it; everything is getting sold off at fire sale prices. And the water—I just got. Uh, I just spoke to uh, some Greek journalists. They were just giving away the water system. It's not like people can't use, won't use the water. They'll have to buy it back, but at an exorbitant price. I saw this happen in Argentina when the IMF required required um, the sale of um, the water system of Buenos Aires to Enron Corporation. And by the way, that also included a call from Jeb Bush, from Jeb Bush to, the, uh, to Menem, the president of Argentina, saying, "Give it to Enron." But it was required by the IMF. Since as as Enron got it, they, they jacked the water prices 400 percent. They stopped repairing the system, so people started losing water. It was just, you know, when the pipes break and they wouldn't repair them. And then, of course, Enron and the money all disappeared. Uh, So they ended up with with exorbitant rates, a busted water system, and it was gone. But again, the IMF required it as as terms of loaning uh, for maintaining uh, the finances of the nation. And that's what they do. So it's a death spiral because... Right now, 21% unemployment in Greece, and, and the Germans are calling for more austerity, as they call it. And so you say, well, how could that be when they just, this week they authorized $200 billion for Greece? Well, they say for Greece, but it's not for Greece. It's for the banks,
5: that, right. like right.
8: Goldman, that held, still held any paper, any of the debts of Greece. Greece has gone from like, something like 90% publicly owned debt to nine, uh, excuse, uh, you know, uh, owned by private parties to 90% debt held by government treasuries. So in other words, the governments, the people of Europe, are now being given the bad debts. And so it was just a bailout for the banks, just like we had here. It's not a bailout for Greece. It's a bailout for the banks, who, you know, they set the fire, then they show up at the fire sale. They even charge a fee for setting the fire. And that's in this chapter, the Generalism of Globalization of Ultras Picnic, where I Discuss these things with the head of the WTO, and then I actually fly off and meet with the um, with the president of Ecuador and go over this stuff that we found. Um, you know, so you know, I'm trying to in all of this actually make sure that I have the the stories correct and, and share it with the principals.
1: Rumor has and it, Greg. Course. I don't know if if you can comment on this, but rumor has it that back in February, U.S. Uh, uh, Secret- uh, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner was detained by New York City police and questioned about some of the financial shenanigans that are going on. Uh, did you hear anything about that?
8: No, wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> I, I do have to say, I have in Vulture's Picnic, I, uh, I do have a memo from Geithner, Timmy Geithner, our Secretary of Treasury, to Larry Summers, who is the uh, economics czar, saying, basically discussing that if any, you know, any nations that resisted deregulation, their, their big concern was Brazil, which would not allow J.P. Morgan to set up a derivatives-selling operation. Brazil is the only nation in the WTO of 155 nations. Brazil, which is one of the strongest economies in the world, said we are not going to allow derivatives trading in our land. We're not going to allow these banks to come in. We're not going to allow toxic assets, no, no derivatives and speculative trading, period. So our government, Geithner and Summers, said, "Well, we're going to um, we're going to bring Brazil to its knees. We're going to cut off imports. We're going to cut off their financing." And uh, Brazil said, "Make our day." Um, and and so Brazil's been growing at eight percent a year. I don't know, you know, I don't think we're going at eight percent a year. <laughs>
1: Well, I can predict a headline if if brazil doesn't uh doesn't um you know give in um I'm going to predict that uh John McCain or someone is going to uh claim that they've got i don't know biological weapons
8: yeah see that's the thing is that you know we we turn suddenly it's just like when uh, um Ecuador resisted um the oil companies, and has resisted Chevron. Oh, It's, it's very interesting. You know, Chevron uh, was found liable for poisoning the Amazon for dumping, very much like BP, except I've been in the Gulf after the spill, and I've been in, in the Amazon after Chevron's dumping. Chevron's dumping is many, many, many times worse than the Gulf. It makes the Gulf look like Garden of Eden. And so, of course, just like our, you know, they were expected to pay. But, um they moved out all their assets, and the U.S. government is providing cover uh, for Chevron um, and protecting Chevron from having to pay its victims in the Amazon. I mean, I saw these kids, they've got, there's like an epidemic of leukemia, people I saw with pustules all over their bodies. It's really pretty horrible stuff. And, um, but, you know, and, and by the way, I did find one wonderful document, you know, Chevron says, well, there's no evidence against us. Well, I have a document written by the president of their Texaco division, Texaco Oil, which is part of Chevron. That said, take all the documents related to oil dumping and remove them from the files and destroy them. I gave that to actually uh, to Chevron's lawyers. I confronted them with this. And rather than them saying, oh, this is a bunch of baloney, it's a phony document, they said, oh, there's a good explanation for this. <laughs> I said, destroying evidence in a case? Isn't that called obstruction of justice? What's the, what's the explanation? That was two years ago. I'm still waiting for their explanation.
1: And you'll keep waiting. That's
8: how it works. <laughs> you know, I mean, but, you know, so I just think the point of all just picking is really to show you how to operate. Meet the 1%, look at their documents as opposed to just say, oh, just the rich guys, you know.
1: Well, uh, Greg, thank you very much for Vulture's Picnic in pursuit of petroleum pigs, power pirates, and high-finance carnivores. Uh, Appreciate your time tonight. And uh, all I can say is, man, stay safe. We need you.
8: It's been been fun. Thanks a lot. Bye.
1: All right, Greg Pallast. And uh, my thanks also to Victor Vigiani, uh, Paula Harris, Steve Blonder, and, of course, Dr. Lynn Katai, David Gaskin for his... Technical production back uh, next week. Uh, another uh, perspective on 9 11 coming your way. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Would I speak in the light, speak in the dark, would you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops? Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.